Hi, I'm Riddhi Shetty. I work on the Privacy and Data Project here at CDT. Recently, we've been advocating for stronger federal and state guidance and regulations against consumer data harms that limit economic opportunity. You can support this and all we do here at CDT by going to cdt.org slash techtalk and donating. Every donation matters. Thank you for enhancing civil rights and civil liberties in the digital age. Welcome to Tech Talk. Bye. CDT. Welcome to CDT's Tech Talk, where we dish on tech and internet policy while also explaining what these policies mean to our daily lives. I'm Jamal Magby, and it's time to talk tech. Here to talk about the markup and how they use investigative journalism to illustrate how powerful institutions are using technology to change our society is Nabiha Saeed. CEO of the Markup and CDT Advisory Council member. Nabiha, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. I'm glad to be here. Love CDT, love what you guys do. So excited to share a little bit more in chat today. Well, I think I think we love you a little more and I'm going to be, I, <laughs> I just want to say congratulations on your on your new title. We're, we're so excited, excited to oh, see you at the helms of the Markup. Thank you. Thank you. So let's jump right into it. Tell us a little bit about the Markup and what makes it different from other news media organizations. Of course. So The Markup is a news nonprofit that investigates the various ways that powerful actors use technology to reshape our society. And that means we're investigating the big tech companies that you have heard about, know about, and probably use just statistically, but also the tech that you've never heard about, the mortgage screening algorithms that decide what your mortgage rate's going to be, or the tenant screening algorithms that decide where you can live, or ed tech that's recording and collecting all kinds of data when you think you're just sitting down for an exam. And what we really believe is that uh, people have a right to know how these systems organize their lives in ways that may not be visible, right? We understand the process behind the democratic process and government and local government, we don't really understand what a lot of these institutions are doing. And so we want to cast light on that. What makes us a little different is that we started in 2019. And to start a news organization in 2019, in the midst of, you know, journalists are the enemy of the state and fake news is a sort of a wild endeavor. And what that required of us is that we had to put trust at the center, right? We thought no one trusts media right now. Um, and they don't know who we are, right? They're just some random new place on, um, entering the field, talking about often beloved or at least highly used, frequently used brands like Facebook or Amazon. We have to show why we're different. We have to show why we're reliable and trustworthy. And so we do a variety of things to really be quite transparent in our news gathering method to give people a reason to trust us. And that includes things like our markup method, the way we republish, the way we publish methodologies and methods about how we do our work, which I'm happy to get into. Yeah, so actually you touched on my next question. Um, can you talk to us a little bit more about what the markup method is and how this, what, what makes this approach uh, to journalism different than others? Absolutely. So, you know, in 2019, I was sitting down with Julia Angwin, who is our fearless founder, who'd been doing tech reporting for, I mean, decades, really. Uh, okay, so the moment we're in requires us to construct journalism that is trustworthy from the start. And often trust is allocated to people who look like you 
organizations you've seen for a long time. You know, you trust things that you've heard about that people you trust, trust. And we don't necessarily have any of that. So the other way people can trust something is if they have transparency into the process. And so we thought, what if we create a method that's built on the scientific method that really starts off in its first step by saying, you know, there's a lot of things that people say, so let's build a hypothesis and let's test it, right? So for example, how many times have we heard that, you know, people who vote for Democrats see one type of news and people who vote for Republicans see another type of news and we live in these totally different filter bubbles. Let's build a hypothesis to test just how true that is. The next step in the markup method is building a data set to actually test the hypothesis. So that could be getting data that is already available somewhere on the internet, someone like ProPublica or another news organization's already collected it and we work through a collaboration. Sometimes you file some public records requests or even litigate public records requests to get access to that kind of data. And sometimes you have to build your own tool to collect it. So building on sort of that filter bubble news idea, we built a tool called Citizen Browser as one example that would help us collect data on a statistically representative sample of the American public and would let us see what news they were being served on Facebook. And we're collecting the data of, if you are a Trump voter, what are you seeing? If you're a Biden voter, what are you seeing? If you're a man, you're a woman, you're white, you're black, in these different groups that are so important in our society, what's your news ecosystem look like? And so that second step is doing the hard work to collect the data. We then move on to the next step where we bulletproof that data. We test our hypothesis, we come up with some conclusions, and critically, we reach out to experts to say, hey, um, this is how we put this together. Uh, does this seem right to you, professor statistician, right? Well, let's talk to like, you know, six or seven different statisticians, get their input on our method, on our analysis. And what that helps us do is something very important. It helps us identify our limitations. I think the most important thing in building trust is having humility and saying, this is what I know. This is what I don't know. I'm not trying to create a grand theory of the universe, but I'm telling you, this is what we can see right now. And I think that humility really helps. And so we get to that by speaking to experts who will point out the gaps and you'll see it in our, in our um, investigative articles where we'll say, you know, we can weigh in on this piece, but we don't know everything. So feel free to give us more information or chime in if you know more to help flush out the picture. And then we publish in our sort of last step, but our approach to publishing is very much framed by a philosophy of show your work, right? Show your math on this one. We publish a methodology. We'll do trainings for people to say, hey, if you want to recreate what we did, here's how you can do it. We'll share our data and our tools with other news partners. So for Citizen Browser, the Facebook tool I just explained, we actually shared it with a German investigative outlet in advance of their own elections. And so that method, right, of really being meticulous, deliberative, data-oriented, uh, humble, and then collaborative, that's the method. So I, I want to ask, and in, in 2016, you know, in the 2016 election, we saw this a lot with this narrative of fake news, you know, anything that, you know, someone didn't like was fake news. And and I see there's actually uh, a scientific a scientific method in how the markup, you know, uh, digs deep into these these topics. So I, I want to ask, do these methods, uh, how do they combat 
that moniker of fake news or how do, how do, how do they push back on that? Uh, it's a great question. And so the first thing is by saying, look, when you call us fake news, often that saying you have a political bias, there's some hidden mechanism or hidden influence that's making you draw one conclusion over another. And so the method really is an antidote to that to say, no, we're actually telling you where we're coming from on this. We've collected what we know. We've had experts test it and we're publishing our limitations. And we think that humility can be really helpful in countering that narrative because we're saying we're not trying to hide the ball and we're not, um, we're not influenced by a philosophy that you're not seeing here. Now, here's what I will say. In 2019, I could not have imagined the sort of full frontal assault on science generally that we've seen in the last two years, right? Here we're sitting in 2019, um, you know, the world seems normal and we're like, well, you know what people trust? Science. People trust science. And as we sit here in 2022, we're like, do people trust science? <laughs> Unclear. Um, but, you know, at some point you got to realize that nothing is a silver bullet and, and trust is a thing that's slow. And so there's never going to be a silver bullet for solving misinformation because there never has been. There's always been conspiracy theories. There's always been your cousin who believes that the moon landing didn't happen. Like that's always been the case. But what we can do is try to chip away at that by providing trustworthy, deeply reported, transparent news to try and say another way is possible and we're doing it. And, and that, that touches on another thing um, th that I want to ask and that you talked earlier about showing, sharing and showing your work, right? And, and I've noticed that anyone can, can republish and share your work as it falls under Creative Commons. Why is this important to the markup? Why is it important to the markup to, to share this work freely and broadly and not keep it close to the best? We have a great gift by virtue of being a nonprofit, which is that we're not really tied to the profit-making obligations that a public media company or another for-profit media company might have. And so if we're not driven by profit, we're driven by our mission. And so much of our mission is about making sure that people have information in their hands to do something about it, right? And that could mean we write an article that a regulator introduces into a Senate hearing, which we've been fortunate enough to have happen. That also means that we can publish something that ends up being the basis of a color of change campaign and petition, which we've also had happen, or that we publish something that gets a uh, company to change its practices right away, like we've seen with Life360 and some of the ed tech work that we've done, um, we prime it for people to do something with it. Because that having that impact at the end of the day, you know, I'm a media litigator by training. I'm a First Amendment lawyer. I like having impact in the world. That's why we do what we do. And, and we realized pretty quickly that, you know, we're a new, small footprint, modest footprint, nonprofit. And having other people republish our work is a way to get the work into other audiences' hands so they can go on and do the good work of making the change happen. And um, we've been incredibly successful, I have to say, more than I thought uh, with this republication strategy. We've been published in countries around the world. We've translated our work. We're frequently, um, we have our stories republished by really different outlets. Our ed tech work ends up in the education sphere 
our data privacy work ends up republished by different people, our Facebook and Google and Amazon work republished in different places. And what's really amazing about that kind of republication is that the work reaches people where they are already. And that's powerful. I was going to say, it sounds like a, a, a win-win on both ends, your work. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> that's awesome. More knowledge. More knowledge is a good thing. We could all do yes. with a little bit more knowledge these days. Yeah. Uh, I, I'll even push a little further. A lot more knowledge. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I, I, I want to ask a little bit about your privacy promise. What, what is this and why is it important to you and your readers? It's a wild experiment rooted in the same 2019 considerations of what does it take to build trust in a moment where we have a huge trust deficit? We thought, you know, one kind of funny conundrum is that we're if we're going to run around saying these places are collecting your data and this this is happening and you don't know about it. We're positioning ourselves as people who are uncovering right the hidden architecture of the world. If we're participating in that, if we're playing into that then we're hypocrites. And that feels uncomfortable. Um, so we thought, could we build a modern news organization that collects as little data as possible? And again, you got to like think about how wild this experiment is now when people talk about like data is the new oil. Companies are being acquired uh, for the data that they collect. It really is a source of tremendous value. We thought, well, let's play around in the sandbox and see what's possible here, right? Will we be able to select vendors internally, right? Like a newsletter platform that is sufficiently privacy protective. Will we be able to reach our audiences if we're not using a variety of like audience tracking methodologies? And the answer so far is yes, um, because we have readers who we get um, donations all the time with little notes that people are like, thank you. Thank you for being a place that I know I can go to. And not worry about how my data is being taken because as one reader mentioned in a note to me, like, I just click accept all cookies every time I go to a website. Like, I don't know what's happening here. I'm not interested. And that's, that is a very important recognition of human behavior, right? Like how many of us have just been like, I just want to read this. All cookies. I don't know. I'm moving forward. And like, yes. that's where people are, right? People want convenience. We're all struggling with too much. And so this sort of notice and consent regime of how we talk about privacy has limitations because people are busy. Okay, and they're not sitting there and reading full on privacy policies. So we thought, let's be on one end of the spectrum. I'm so happy to say, right, what we're seeing a lot of in this industry with the move away from third party data collection to first party data collection mm -hmm. is that there's a lot of interest and intrigue in like how we've done what we've done so far. Um, our audience director, Rachel Berkey, gets a lot of inbounds from people throughout the industry who are like, wait, how do you know who your audience is <laughs> if, you, if you're not collecting all this data? And we um, joke with them that were like, you know, the 1990s existed, right? Like we go about things the old school way. We reach out, we have focus mm -hmm. groups, we have surveys. Um, and we find that to be incredibly effective. I never, I never thought I'd see the day where, you, where we learned, where we yearned for the 1990s, right? I know. <laughs> have, you seen, have you seen the fashion people are wearing these days? The 90s oh, are back. They the are 90s back. are back. They're strong. <laughs> I saw, um, I saw a woman with Tamagotchi earrings the other day. And I was like, first of all, I live in Brooklyn. So that's its own <laughs> Um, but I was like, all right, we're doing this. We have a full-on Tamagotchi phase. I could never keep those things alive. Those, those things, they, I got them and they were dead. <laughs> Same. So uh, since joining the markup in 2019, 
how has tech journalism changed? What's new and, and, and what are some things we should be looking out for? What I'm so thrilled to see is that, you know, 2018, 2019, we saw a lot of tech journalism coverage that was almost like political horse race coverage, or it was geared towards advocates, right? Or I'm sorry, not advocates, investors. It's like this company raised this series A, this, you know, this change is happening inside this company. Occasionally, sure, there were amazing accountability journalism pieces about big tech companies, but the overall uh, tone and tenor was much more celebratory or investor friendly, right? Like you should put your money into these companies. What's happened, I mean, I think what's truly remarkable is in 2020 with the onset of the lingering pandemic, so many of our lives jumped onto screens, right? Mm -hmm. Things that we would always do in person were now remote. Your doctor's appointments, your schooling, the way you talk to your loved ones, all was mediated by these tech platforms that we didn't truly deeply understand. So I really think that there was this sort of interesting shift of curiosity and appetite into like, wait a minute, what is going on here, right? Who are we trusting and with what? Um, especially as so many of those companies were, you know, doing quite well economically, despite the lived experience of so many people, right? There was a desire to explain the gap, sort of explain that gap. And so I think we've seen a real growth in tech accountability journalism, which I love and celebrate. There are such amazing reporters out there who are holding the big tech companies and the tech you've never heard of all to account. And we see them as, you know, like celebrated colleagues and peers. We do a lot of collaboration at the markup. We've co-published with the New York Times, with Consumer Reports, with the AP. And our our view here is, again, as a mission-driven organization, like more in the tent is better because that's more opportunities for more people to see what's going on, to really ask tough questions about the architecture of how their world is run. And some people will conclude they're fine with it, and some people will not. That is so interesting. So let me ask you this, and there may not be any easy answers or or easy fixes, although I'm keeping my fingers crossed that there might be. What are some of the, in your opinion, what are some of the biggest tech policy issues that we're facing currently? Like, like what is something that kind of keeps you up at night? Ooh, so many things, but I'm going to zoom out and answer in a real galaxy brain way. So forgive me for this. Um, And I'm going to, as part of that galaxy brain journey, I'm going to ask you to time travel with me. So if we go back to the 1930s and the 1940s, you know, banks crash, everyone is in dire straits. And there was sort of a cultural and social realization of like, hey, um, banks are really powerful. We should probably have some check on their power. And then you see the development of the Fed, the development of generally accepted accounting principles, standardizations and accountability and checks and and balances for these huge banks that control a lot of our industry. We're not going to talk about 2008 right now. We're just talking about the 1930s. (laughs) But there was was a realization in that moment that there needed to be some oversight, right? Mm -hmm. Fast forward another, you know, 30-ish years, We see in the mid-1900s the growth of the administrative state post-New Deal. We see all kinds of government decisions being made in bureaucracies in a way that isn't clearly accountable to the public in the democratic process that we previously have understood, right? If you think about sort of people's conception of democracy, it's like you elect a local person, they do or do not do what you want, and then if they don't do what you want, you get rid of them. Well, that's not really true of 
you know, an administrative bureaucracy, which has really grown, which really grew in, in the mid century. So there was like, hmm, how are we going to hold them accountable? Let's create the Freedom of Information Act and a variety of other rooted in the First Amendment access law principles. Are they perfect? No. Is the philosophy relevant? Yes, because it was the it was a real a conclusion that the government is extremely powerful mm-hmm. over our lives, and there should probably be some checks and balances over what they're doing in this new form, right? You also, around that time, see the heyday of a particular type of investigative journalism with Watergate and what have you, of saying, wow, there are these forces that are holding the government accountable. So we see an accountability structure for banks and a transparency and disclosure regime for banks. We see it for the government. And now let's fast forward a little longer than we should have uh, done, but here we are in 2022. This realization that we have tech companies, big and small, that wield an outsized amount of power over our lives in all kinds of nooks and crannies that we are just learning about. And there isn't really a clear check on their power, right? Yeah, there's the FTC and there's regulators and and there's, you know, there's a there's litigation and there's state regulators. I don't want to undercut their work. Mm-hmm. But all of that's shaking out in real time, right? We're all waiting to see like, are there gonna be fines that are big enough to change this behavior? What like what are the incentive structures that we're creating to have true transparency and accountability to these powerful actors in our society? And that is the big question of our moment, right? Are we willing to cede a tremendous amount of power to these institutions and just trust it's all going to be fine? Or are we willing to fight for and demand an accountability structure? And that could be anything from, you know, a method of requesting information from private companies, kind of like a public records act, but for private companies, it could be much more sort of toothsome, um, that's not the right word, with teeth, like regulations with teeth, (laughs) like we're seeing in the EU around big companies. Um, It could take a lot of forms. And I think what makes me excited about this moment is that we're in a moment of regulatory imagination. Everyone's like, what we have is not working. Let's figure out how to fix it. None of these fixes are going to be easy fixes. And I think that, so I have the optimism around sort of imagination of the moment where I have a little bit of pessimism, maybe more than a little, is um, every fix yields its own need for future solutions. Yes. Every fix you make, you're like, I didn't realize this unanticipated problem. And so what we really need smart people to be thinking about right now is not just what's the fix, but what problem is that going to create that we need to think about in 10 years time? Because we're not going to wait another 100 or 90 for, for that set of accountability questions. It's almost like whack-a-mole, right? Like you, you hit one and then there's totally. another one that pops up. <laughs> totally. And like such is the nature of human life, right? Like you right. fix one thing. <laughs> like I was talking to someone about, you know, GMO foods fix a hunger problem and then they can mm-hmm. create other health problems. You know, who knows? <laughs> but, um, but I think that the interlocking pieces aspect of tech policy is what makes it so exciting, but also uniquely challenging. Yes. So I, I, I want to hit the other side of this too. Uh, and more so in tech journalism. I know we just we just kind of hit a little bit of doom and gloom, but what are your what are your hopes for the future of, of tech and especially tech journalism, right? Um, where I, do you see bright spots? Sorry. I there's so many bright spots, right? There's so many people who are experimenting with really thoughtful ways of engaging with these big tech behemoths. You have people like Casey Newton who writes Platformer, who's, you know, from in a very 
human, accessible, super smart way, asking tough questions about like, what's going on here, right? Um, Charlie Warzel is in that same vein. You see the rise of data journalism, the type of which that we do, um, as a program uh, that's growing in all of these journalism schools across the country. Um, you know, Lam Vo, who's a professor at CUNY, talks about how when she started teaching journalism, data journalism, you know, the classes were modest in size and now they're oversubscribed, right? That like people are like, I want to learn how to do this kind of data journalism. I want to move beyond. I interviewed three people who work at big tech company X and here's what they said, right? And here's what their comms person said. There, it's moving to something that is much more rich and nuanced. Another development that I see that I just love, it brings me so much joy, is that there is this constant question of we're building these technologies, we're building a tech future, and you see this in conversations around Web3 a lot. Who has a seat at the table and who doesn't, right? Who is this for and who is this not for? Who is it not working for? Is a set of questions that are so front of mind in the conversations I'm in, in a way that like Web 2.0 um, didn't always have, or at least fell by the wayside as we centralized through, you know, a couple of juggernauts. That's really optimistic. And then I will say in our own org, it's, uh, I'll give you actually an example just from a couple weeks ago, you know, we had been doing this really great reporting on ed tech platforms that are collecting data on students when they're, you know, filling out applications for different things or when they're sitting down for a test. So we decided to hold an event where we would teach students how they could do this kind of work about their own lives, right? About things that they were seeing in the world. And we had hundreds of people RSVP. Um, that's amazing, right? To yeah. think that there's that much appetite to say, I deserve to, and I want to know what is happening in my world. And these aren't necessarily all people who are going to turn into journalists, by the way, right? That acts of journalism are being carried forth by people who have all kinds of different degrees and backgrounds <laughs> and professions is actually a win for journalism because it's really a mode of being. It's, it's a mode of saying we deserve to know more <laughs> and it's great. For more people to believe that than others, because I think that is really the only way we get a better world. And, you know, we need that. We, we need that. <laughs> we, we, we need <laughs> it bad and we need it yeah, now. Right. <laughs> um, so closing this out, any final thoughts? What are any any big any just anything you'd like to share with our listeners? Sure. I think. It's very easy and so understandable these days to fall into sort of doom and gloom mm -hmm. or a belief that, well, you know, here's a class action lawsuit being brought by someone, but it's not going to go anywhere. Or Here's this thing and nothing's going to happen. People have always been exploited. It's not going to work. And I just I want to channel all of our inner Mr. Rogers to say like there are people doing good like look for the helpers there's so much experimentation there's so much enthusiasm and yeah some of the things we're trying aren't going to work but so long as there's a spirit to improve right? right to not just hold tech accountable because it's powerful but to hold tech accountable because we love it we need it we understand the capacity it has to connect us as people and to improve all of our lives that is a huge, a beautiful motivating force. And I think there is so much reason to stay optimistic. I know I am. Ooh, 
well, I'm I'm so happy we could we could end this on an optimistic note uh, <laughs> because I I think sometimes we get so wrapped up in in all the bad things that would that that happens with tech we forget about all the great things you know that that this that tech also brings. So of course, I, I'm so happy. Um, and and I'm so happy you got a chance to join us. Thank you so much for being here today. Um, we really really appreciate really really appreciate your time. Oh, thank you for having me. This was so much fun. Um, invite me back anytime. I'd love to chat. Oh, yeah. We're, um, my producer, Nick, and I are already thinking of ways how we can get you back in, in the next few weeks. So trust me, you you will be seeing my name come across your computer screen again, uh, <laughs> requesting, <laughs> requesting that you join us again. Sounds great. Well, I am, again, a huge fan of everything that CDT does. This is such an important force in the experimentation of how do we build a better future for all of us. And so it's a real honor to be here. Thanks for having me. Thank you. And for all of our listeners, if you would like to learn more about the markup, please visit themarkup.org. And to learn more about CDT's work, please visit us at cdt.org. I'm Jamal Magby, and thank you for talking tech.